Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes. I think at one time or another, each of us has asked ourselves, somewhere in the busy corridors of our own minds, how did you evolve? You being your own mind. Where did the human-like mind evolve? Well, that's one of the big questions being explored by my guest today, Alexandra Rosati. She is an assistant professor of psychology and anthropology at the University of Michigan. There, Alex leads the Cognitive Evolution Group, and she searches for answers to our mind's evolution and how it makes decisions by peering into the minds of apes like us, chimpanzees and bonobos, as well as monkeys and lemurs. She is asking, how do our primate relatives think about the world? And how does that influence their decision-making? That's all with the goal of understanding how our own minds are ultimately influenced. This is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Alex. So I'd like to welcome you to Talking Apes. I am so excited about having you because we've kind of been knowing each other for two and a half, three years or something since you were so kind to help out on uh, Little Larry, the chimpanzee book that I was working on with National Geographic. Thank you for the invitation. It's really great to have you. I tell, I have to tell you, I'm a little, um, I'm a little intimidated by your work. Because when I started digging into all the research on it, I was coming across words like hetero heterochrony. I you have to help me out there. <laughs> heterochrony. Heterochrony. Okay, yeah. we're gonna we'll get to that stuff in a little bit because um, as I was reading through some of your research and and the papers that you've done, it, it was sort of like talking. A, talking apes tongue twisters, if I can even say that. And so, uh, so we'll, I, I may need your help every once in a while on some of these terms and where we're going with it. But um, I think what's interesting about your work, or at least as I perceived it, is that um, it, it made me think about uh, in many, many years ago, when I spent some time at Gombe with Jane Goodall, we were sitting one night on the, on the beach at Lake Tanganyika. And she said, you know, if I hadn't studied chimpanzees, I would have loved to have studied human beings, but I don't think they would let me sit in the corner of their living room with my notepad and take little notes about their behaviors. But it seems like in many ways, that's what your career is. You sort of sit in the corner of a chimpanzee's living room and you make little notes and then somehow correlate it, match it up to apes like us, you know, and humans. And is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of what we're doing is is exactly what you're saying, like really um, intense observation and attention to what animals are really doing in their real lives. And, you know, we complement that with uh, experiments where we basically play games with different animals and see how they think and solve problems. And that's probably more familiar with to, to folks who... Um, do work in developmental psychology, the way we would study humans or like human children. But often with the animals, we have just a lot more insight into what's going on with them. And not just this little snapshot of how they act in this one little moment, but um, we can kind of see them over this long period of their life 
in a way that you know would be really difficult to do with a human. And are those mostly done in captive settings, or are you working in wild settings, or what's the basis for a lot of that? So the experimental work, you know, our goal is to try to test animals that are as close to the wild as is possible, where we can still do those kinds of cognitive experiments. So typically, um, you know, these kinds of experiments would be very difficult to do in the wild because, you know, you can't interact with a wild animal in, in the same kind of way because you would be disrupting their, their natural lives. But we study also animal populations where they're, they're semi-free ranging, you know, they're living with other chimpanzees or other monkeys, um, but they're so familiar with humans, we're actually able to show up and play a game with them. And so, you know, the hope is that they're, they're not in the wild, but they're kind of as close as you can get and still do this kind of research. So you're looking at probably a lot of the sanctuaries like rescued animals um, in the wild or habituated in places like Kibali or in Uganda or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, our work with chimpanzee cognition has focused a lot on, on African sanctuaries. So chimpanzees that um, are wild born but are, have, are living in sanctuaries now. Um, I collaborate with the uh, Kibali Chimpanzee Project also for some work with wild chimps. Um, and actually, we, we study a lot of non-apes. So we also study um, rhesus monkeys and barbary macaques and lemurs. And we partner with different, um, different sites to do that work. So, for example, we work at the Caribbean Primate Research Center, the Kyle Santiago Field Station in Puerto Rico. We partner with the Duke Lemur Center to study lemurs. And these are all places where the animals, you know, they spend a good deal of time in some cases, almost all their time, you know, running around outside, but we can still show up and play these games with them. Mm. So how, uh, I guess I didn't realize the, the scope of the, the primates that you're actually looking at. So how, do, how does it differ between apes? Well, like take start with humans and then let's work our way to the lemurs, I guess, or something. <laughs> but but uh, how, how does it differ what you, what you're looking at? And, um, and I guess, how are you trying to, I guess, what do you, what are you looking at when you're looking at a group? Because it, it seemed like from the outside, the physical side, they seem like such very different creatures when you look human, gorilla, mm -hmm. lemur. It's true. Yeah. I think, so my, my research is really focused on the question of how did a human-like mind evolve? Like where did our kind of sophisticated complex cognition come from? Um, and to do that, we're trying to kind of break down the problem into different components. And that's why we study different animal species because they help us address different aspects of this question. So because, you know, apes like chimpanzees and bonobos are our closest relatives, they're especially important for understanding the roots of human cognition because, yeah, they're, they're as close to us as we can find in nature right now. Um, and, you know, working with a chimpanzee is kind of like uh, trying to run, to, trying to play a game with a very devious five-year-old. You know? So they're, they're very smart. Uh, they might have a different goal than you. Um, sometimes they outwit us. Uh, you know, but there's the way in which they interact with us so that we can interact with them is, is, is much more similar to, to another person, um, with, with important difficulties, differences, but like still, still quite similar. Um, whereas, you know, when we, when we do studies with lemurs, one of the big questions we are trying to address with our work on lemurs is just more general questions about in general, how does 
how do different components of cognition evolve? So lemurs are quite different from us in many ways, and they're much more distantly related to us than, than are the apes. Um, but they're really cool because there was this radiation of lemurs on Madagascar. So there's a lot of species that are closely related, but live in different kinds of social groups and eat different kinds of diets. Um, and so even though the way we do some of these uh, studies with lemurs, you know, we might scale down what we could do with a chimpanzee or adjust it to take into account the the special nature of lemurs. They can tell us something about like how does evolution work in general, not just how did humans evolve, but how how does this happen? How does cognition evolve across the natural world? I, when you mentioned that uh, they sometimes outwit you, do you ever go back and then have to look at your own cognition? after you've been outwitted all day long? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we always have a plan A and a plan B and maybe a plan C about how we're going to do some of this research. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, the chimpanzees, they are really smart and they come, you know, we come into it with a certain vision of how we think this game is going to be played. And sometimes they have a very different vision of how they think they're going to play the game. And, you know, we just have to, we have to accommodate that and figure out how to deal with it. I know a lot of the filming that I've done over the years has been in, um, in sanctuaries where you, you do have the wild born, but they've been rescued from poachers or, you know, the pet trade or something. And they end up, and they not only, um, you, you can see those minds working and trying to outwit you, but there's also this um, this sort of Lord of the Flies kind of behavior that that develops when you get all these youngsters that only grow up together. They don't have mentors. They don't have older um, chimps or older apes to 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 sort of look after them. Um, and you really you really see them as a group sort of thinking and behaving in, in a very different way. So, um, yeah, I can imagine you run into all kinds of situations. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the sanctuaries there, there's some salient differences from the wild. Um, and I think sometimes when you see more of these peer groups, that can be one difference, like you're mentioning that there's not, um, the same age distribution you might see in a wild group. Um, you know, another interesting thing is that oftentimes the females will have a lot more, uh, seeming social power in the group in a way that might not be as true as in the wild. So there's definitely, you know, some some interesting sociological effects of how how these groups are created. But yeah, I mean, they don't, you know, I think I think if we could run these studies with um, with wild chimps, we we'd also see them trying to outwit us in some kind of Lord of the Flies uh, <laughs> uh, uh, manner as well. Because yeah, I mean, you know. For them, it's kind of fun. It's fun to to beat the to beat the game in a new way that was not the way that 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 person intended it to be done. Exactly. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I ran across um, in in looking through all your work was there was a lot about aging, and I, I guess that was sort of highlighted um, most recently because there was you know there was article in the New York Times and and others of it. I mean the the title of it is really awesome. Um, you and your colleagues had done it's no uh, let's see what is it there there are no grumpy old men in the world of chimpanzees. So I mean my first question was going to be you know why aren't there any grumpy old men but um, but I'd also love to to connect it to this idea of socio emotional selective theory. And, and maybe you could talk about that because that that whole idea of aging is really interesting to me, and I'd like to pursue it with you a little bit. Yeah, you know this this paper is I think a really 
fun example of how um, scientists coming from different perspectives can collaborate and do something new. So it, it, the, the whole project is, has been a collaboration between um, myself and the Kibali Chimpanzee Project, specifically one of the co-directors, Dr. Zarima Chanda, who's a, um, a professor at Tufts. And um, Zarina and I have actually been friends for a long time. And because of that, we, you know, just chat about science and this and that. And, um, and I'm kind of coming more from this background of cognitive science and psychology, whereas Zarine is, a, you know, a field primatologist. And there's this idea in psychology called socio-emotional selectivity theory, which is um, a proposal to try to explain how people's goals and emotions change over their whole lifespan. And the idea is maybe a little bit counterintuitive because we are used to thinking sometimes about, um, you know, a grumpy old man or something like that. But actually, yeah, but, it, but surprisingly, actually, the data suggests that um, older people tend to be more positive and more fulfilled in their social relationships than our younger people. Um, actually, there's some really interesting stuff coming out of right now during the, um, the pandemic showing that older adults are actually dealing with the disruption and the events of the pandemic in a more positive way than our younger adults. And you might think it would be the op opposite because um, of the, the relative risks of of the virus, but actually it's, it's not, it's that older adults are dealing with this better. And so the idea here is that along your lifespan, um, people's goals and, you know, emotional self-regulation is shifting in a way that facilitates different parts, different phases of the life. So that when you're younger and you perceive that your future is long and expansive in front of you, that your primary goal is to form new relationships. Uh, and sometimes that means dealing with negative experiences. So, you know, in order to build new relationships, you're sometimes going to encounter people that, uh, you know, aren't very nice to you or cause a, an unpredictable or negative experience. Um, and then the idea is that as, as people get older or more generally perceive that their future is kind of getting shorter, you kind of just don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> so it's basically the logic that when, you know, when you see that there's, that time is running out, that there's not that much time left, you really want to focus on the, the people and the relationships that are meaningful and supportive. And that means that maybe you have less social ties, but that those social ties are, are stronger and more fulfilling. Um, and, and that's kind of this idea that there's this, this shift across the lifespan. So the reason we started talking about this was because the particular um, one of the particular proposals for why humans show this shift is this idea that humans are aware of our own mortality and our own, you know, our own future. Like you can think about the fact that some years down the line, you're not going to be alive anymore and that time is running out. Um, and we, we don't think that animals have that same level of self-awareness. So, you know, other animals definitely can plan and, and think to the future to some degree, but this really rich sense of like your own mortality and that, you know, 20 years from now I'm going to die. We don't really think that animals view the world in that way. They, they seem to be, you know, the evidence suggests that they're kind of a little bit more living in the moment. Um, and so what that suggests is this sort of interesting test of this theory coming from a totally different direction, namely well, do other animals show the same shift? Because if other animals can't think about their future in this way, then according to this view, they, they shouldn't show this change in their social relationships and their emotional regulation. Um, and if we saw that other animals did show this kind of shift, it would suggest that you can 
um, you can accomplish that without this rich cognition that, that is future oriented the way we see in humans. So we, we were interested in that because, you know, chimps are our closest relatives. They live a really long time. They have really complex social relationships and they have social bonds that can span many years or even decades. So they're kind of really well situated to be a species that might parallel humans and these kinds of changes in their friendships over the lifetime. Um, but nobody had tested it. So that's what we set out to do. Do we, do, um, is there a difference between, uh, have you looked at it? Is there a difference between chimps and bonobos in that, that regard? Because they do have, yeah. obviously they do have a different sort of cultural structure. Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. And to my knowledge, nobody's looked at something like that in bonobos, but um, you know, based on our results, we would suspect that it's very plausible that bonobos would show the same kind of shift from having um, more uh, more important friendships as they get as they're older in life. Um, but yeah, right now nobody's looked at that. Because one of the things that I I, I think I, I I got this correctly, but one of the things I read in some of the work that you've done is that there there is a difference between males and females as they grow older and and this um and maybe that hence that was the part of the reason for the title grumpy old men but there is this difference and and that's what made me wonder if since bonobos have a a society that is typically female dominated um if those females tend to act more like what we think of as males as they get older, do they, it, that relationship bonds and. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a really um, interesting prediction. And actually our paper focused on the male chimps and we didn't even look at females in part because in the wild um, male and female chimps really differ in the way in which they socialize and the, the degree to which they socialize. So we used, you know, long-term data to identify pairs of chimps that were either strong mutual friends or just one-sided friends where one chimp kind of seems to want to hang out with the other chimp, but that other chimp doesn't really reciprocate it. Um, and what we found was that the, as chimps got older, they, they switched from having more of these one-sided friends to more of these mutual friends. But you know, the way we were able to identify the friendships in the wild chimps hinged on this pattern of interactions with each other that female chimps just don't even really show on the same level. So if we had gone to try to calculate those exact same um, friendship metrics for female chimps, it actually wouldn't have even been possible because of how much less female chimps associate with each other. Uh, but in bonobos, like you're mentioning, it's actually females that have strong bonds and females that have long relationships. Um, and males actually don't have that particularly strong relationships with each other. So it's, it's the reverse of chimps. Like you were mentioning, so yeah, it could be that we actually see that it's females that show all the action in bonobos, um, and less so males. Well, it was interesting, and the reason, part of the reason I brought that up is because we had um, not too long ago we had um, Brian Hare on from Duke, and he was taught. We were talking about bonobos in particular, and I something about you know females in in the dominance in that um, that 
society. And he said, actually, one of the things that they're looking at now, and I guess we were stealing a little bit of the thunder from Richard Rangham at Harvard, was that maybe it's actually the infants, the the children who are controlling a lot of what goes on in that society because there's so much emphasis put on sort of a village raising, you know, raising the, the little ones. Um, it's not just males and not just females, but actually infants. So it's it's interesting. That brought up a question I wanted to ask you is as we age, are there punctuation marks along that timeline of aging in which we, we see these shifts? Because you had mentioned, you know, when we're younger, we, we take more risks at, at friendships, perhaps, and and more risks at just things in general, because we think we can recover from it and move on to something more positive, I guess. Um, are there are there do we see punctuation marks not only in humans, but do we see that in other primates and in great apes where there seems to be, yeah, up to about this age, we're willing to do this. Up to this age, we're willing to do this. At this age, we start thinking about friendships in a different way or about relationships in general. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think it highlights how it is a little bit harder to put um, – signposts on the lifespan in old age. So like when you're, you, you look at the younger part of the life, you know, um, for, a, for a primate, there's like when you are weaned and you transition from um, nursing to eating your own food or when you hit puberty and you transition from being a juvenile to being an adult, there's sort of some clear um, goalposts saying something different is happening now. And I think once you hit adulthood, some of these goalposts aren't necessarily quite as clear. And so I think oftentimes people just think of it more as a continuous change. Um, but it's, it, it, it could be just that we don't know where the signposts are exactly. Um, in humans, there's at least one more signpost, which is for females at least, you know, there's menopause. So there's like a clear transition from reproductive to post-reproductive life. But actually, we don't think that other primates have menopause, or at least they don't um, exhibit something similar to humans, where there's this long period of reproductive life very commonly. Um, so we don't even have that kind of signpost for, uh, for other primates. Um, but we might, there might be other things that could be relevant and just aren't totally understood yet. So for example, um, for male chimps, what we see is a big change in their dominant status as they transition from young adulthood to prime age to, to older adulthood. Um, so especially those prime age males, um, maybe around age 30, you can kind of think of 25 to 30, they're like um, much higher dominant status. But then as they get older, they start to fall in status in part because, you know, they're losing muscle mass and other aspects of phys other physical indicators that allow them to fight in ways that are important for chimpanzees. But I'm not sure there's like an exact age at which the, 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 the switch is flipped or something. It's more just a continuous change in their, um, in their status and physical health. And um, how much does environment play in, in something like that? In, in what sense? It, in, 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 do you think it, it plays in those those goalposts? I guess if if we're looking at it that way, I I, I guess I'm I'm connecting it in my head. And maybe that's not the place to be <laughs> connecting this. But um, some of your work deals with um, cognition and spatial um, spatial development, and and especially around food for, uh, foraging. Mm -hmm. And it, and I'm just wondering, 
obviously that chimpanzees, bonobos, for example, all all of them, I suppose, live in these very. Um, I, I like to think of them as three-dimensional, three-dimensional worlds. They not only live in the, the typical three dimensions that we think about, but they also live like watching them climb in the canopy. You know, they're, they're looking at tensile strength of branches. They're looking at the, if it rained, if it's wet, they're looking at encountering another, uh, another chimp or another animal snake that, so they have to deal with the threat. So there's, there's not only the typical sor sort of up down you know, relationship in, in dimension, but there's also these other dimensions spatially that they have to deal with. Um, and principally I would guess because of food foraging. Um, and that's, that's what I meant is, is how does the environment play in, is that, is that question just totally confusing? <laughs> so like how does their physical environment affect their aging patterns? Well, affect their aging, but these, uh, these, I was thinking of it in terms of these goalposts, like it, the decision making that we we come across as as we get older, and how much as uh, do they simplify the environment they build, they live in? I mean, for example, little little primates spend a lot more time in the canopy climbing, um, but as they get older, um, they tend to they be more sedentary. Um, yeah, so you know, they, I think this is actually this is actually a topic of intense study right now. So, um, and, and the reason we don't a hundred percent know what it is that's happening when they're getting older is because chimps just live such a long time. Um, so to really understand that, you know, you need to kind of watch how individuals age and because they can live 50 plus years in the wild, it's only recently that people have actually been able to see the same chimp from birth to death. Um, and oftentimes in older work, folks came in and, um, you know, estimated the age uh, of, of the adult, but maybe only saw a portion of their life. Um, and it really takes these long-term studies like the Kivali Chimpanzee Project to see like the full breadth and span of what a chimpanzee life looks like um, and to capture that, that length of time. Because, you know, I mean, 50 years is a really, it's a really long time um, and, and people have only recently been even studying any chimps for that long. So there is some, you know, there's some information about uh, like their physical changes in the body and they definitely do become a little bit more frail as they age, which you might think would affect how they move through the canopy and how they choose to socialize. But it's also the case that some of this data, like coming out of the, the of KCP, the Capelli Chimpanzee Project, some of it is, is surprising in how healthy they are. Um, you might think that an animal in the wild is really... Um, is 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 really dealing with a lot of energetic stress or um, you know needing to find food and that this is difficult, um, but it turns out that they're they're doing pretty well. Like it's the thing that actually um, results in chimpanzees dying in the wild very often is actually respiratory viruses and not just something like failing to move around or failing to find food. Um, so in some ways, it's kind of surprising how much they're not impacted by those kinds of concerns as they get older. Would you would you expect if you took this body that you're looking at in the case of uh, Kabali chimps, um, if you were to look at chimps in West Africa, for example, a completely different environmental setting, would you expect to see different kinds of re results in that or? Yeah, I think, you know, we know that across different 
chimpanzee sites in the wild that different chimpanzee communities um, face different problems with finding food, with nutritional stress. So even just in Kibali National Park in Uganda, um, there's actually more than one well-studied community of chimp in that park. Um, so in addition to the Kanyawara um, community, which is what I've been collaborating with, there's also the Ngogo community. Um, and, you know, they're right there in the same park. They're just kilometers away from each other. But the Ngogo community is more in the center of the park with core forest. And the Kanyawara community is closer to the edge where there used to be logging. I mean, even just that, that small difference, there's pretty well documented uh, differences in their um, access to good food resources. It seems to impact things like uh, inner birth interval, uh, other aspects of um, health, parasite load. So there's already some big differences between these two chimp communities in the same national park. So yeah, I think it's possible that if folks looked in the same way at chimps living in West Africa, where um, they're living in a different kind of forest um, with different kinds of uh, resources available to them, that, that this likely impacts how they live day to day. Well, yeah, I guess I, I was also thinking about, you know, um, we had um, Dr., uh, Dr. Martha Robbins on who um, and, and she was two things that she had talked about that I thought connected to some of the things you were saying. One is she talked about two female gorillas uh, in Bowindi that they had followed for a number of years. And these two females didn't they were in the same troop but they didn't seem to have much connection other than the males and then there was a problem in and um the the male the silverback in that group was um, deposed and the new silverback and at that point um, they both migrated together to another silverback and she said the thing that was interesting was behaviorally they were just as indifferent to each other when they went to the new group there wasn't this sort of relationship there um, that you would have thought they'd go over and they would be like, yeah, we need to stick together. We're sort of mm -hmm. sisters from the other place. And that's, I, I just thought that was kind of interesting in looking at these relationships, how it doesn't, the, the environment or the shift in the setting doesn't necessarily shift the behavior um, in in that case. Have you, has much of... Much of your, have you, any of your work looked at gorillas in particular? No, no, not really any work with gorillas. Mm. Okay. Um, sorry, I dropped my thought there. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're not live. <laughs> um, I, it was, uh, it had something to do with food foraging and I'm sorry about that. I just oh, no completely, uh, dropped the whole, the whole thought there. Um, it, it was something that you had done in about, again, it was back to aging and how it influenced, um, I'm trying to check my notes here. You, you had written something about it's how we value things. And there was a, there's reference to food versus money, like in primates, obviously, uh, in humans and our willingness to cooperate. Um, does that tick any bells for you? Um, I'm really sorry. I just, I had it in my head and we were talking about that. And then the Martha Robbins thing popped up and I totally lost my train of thought there for a sec. I, I mean, I, I have some work where we look at where we've actually um, taken some of the games that we do with non-human primates and, and 
and seen how humans actually react to the same game. And we've done oh, some really? comparisons with food and money. So maybe it has something to do with that. Yeah, it may have, may have jumped onto that. Um, let me just take a quick peek here. Um, Well, let's let's jump to uh, one of the tongue twisters then, and and maybe that will <laughs> pop back into my mind okay. here in, in a minute. So this term um, heterochrony, am I saying that correctly? Heterochrony. Heterochrony. Um, I, I bumped into that when I was looking through some of your work, and I don't think that's a word most people will have heard of. It's, it's certainly <laughs> it was new to me. So. Um, in terms of, of, of chimps and bonobos, can you explain it and and talk a little bit more about it? Sure, yeah. I mean, and, and actually maybe this ties in with this um, earlier discussion about foraging, uh, because one of my major interests in, in thinking about chimps and bonobos and what's different and what's similar between them has been thinking about how their feeding ecology might shape how they view the world, basically. Um, and I think it sounds like you've talked about some of the social differences between these species, um, but a core proposal is that actually the reason that their social relationships are so different is actually because they live in different kinds of environments, that they, they feed in different, they, they live in different forests and they feed in different kinds of food. Um, so chimps are only north of the Congo River and bonobos are only south, and the idea is that there's some you know, not extreme, but some some important differences between the ecologies of these regions, such that chimps, um, for example, seem to range a little bit farther than uh, bonobos. They seem to feed on food that's a little bit more seasonally variable. Uh, they eat more fruit, which is kind of patchily distributed in the environment, whereas bonobos are thought to feed more on terrestrial herbs that are more like a salad bowl that's just kind of everywhere. Um, and then you see sort of some consequences of this are maybe that for chimps, foraging is just a little bit more costly. So, for example, they're quite adept uh, tool users. They, they engage in extractive foraging in the wild, whereas bonobos basically don't. Um, even though they can use tools in, in captive settings, they, they really don't in the wild in the same way that chimps do. Um, chimps also engage in hunting which is thought to be kind of a bit of a risky strategy because you spend a lot of time and energy running around after a monkey, but you might get nothing. So, you know, based on these kinds of differences in their wild behavior and their wild um, ecological environments, you know, I had thought that we might see differences in their cognition that reflect that, that are sort of, um, that are the beneficial cognitive skills to survive and to thrive in these different kinds of environments. So, for example, because chimps deal with patchier resources than bonobos in the wild, that they might have, you know, more robust spatial memory. Uh, if you're going to eat food that's sort of scattered all over the place, you got to remember where it is. Um, so that's not to say that bonobos wouldn't have spatial memory too, but just that it's sort of crucial for chimps to have this skill come online and, and allow them to engage in mature forms of foraging more so than it would be for bonobos. And that's kind of why uh, we were interested in looking at the development of these skills. And the reason is because one idea for how do you, how do you build a species that has different cognition than another species, right? That's kind of one of the big questions that I'm interested in is how do you build a species like a human? How does this get created by, by evolution? 
And one idea is that what evolution does, what natural selection does, is it just kind of twiddles the dials a little bit on development to create a species that's a little bit different from the ancestor species. Or just, you know, just by speeding development up a little bit or slowing it down a little bit, you can kind of keep, you don't have to, you know, retool the whole animal, but you can sort of create this variation that's important for solving adaptive problems. And, and what I just described is basically the concept of heterochrony, which is um, that differences in the uh, timing of important developmental events may be an evolutionary mechanism to create adaptive variation in the natural world. So you don't have to redo everything. You just kind of change the dials on, on development. So we thought, well, maybe one way, you know, you create a chimpanzee with more robust spatial memory than a bonobo is by having the development of spatial memory in chimps kind of ramp up, um, kind of go faster than it does in a bonobo. Uh, so we compared uh, infants and juveniles of these two species to try to understand how, um, how and when spatial memory is sort of turning on in these two different species. So, so it's really, it, I mean, we're looking at almost like, you know, the mental flexibility or mental gymnastics accelerating in, in, in chimps. I mean, is there a difference in, in any of that? Is there a difference in, in physical development and sexual development? I mean, do those have an influence um, in this, this overall evolution? So, you know, chimps and bonobos, they have pretty similar life histories in terms of like these signposts of when important things are happening in their physical development. Um, but there is some, there were, there's already with some information that maybe bonobos are a little bit, a little bit what's sometimes called pedomorphic, which basically means that an adult bonobo is kind of a little bit more like a juvenile chimpanzee um, than it is like an adult chimpanzee. Uh, and, you know, one, one signal of this is that adult bonobos are a lot more tolerant and maybe more playful than our um, adult chimpanzees. And we think of this kind of tolerance and playfulness as being a real sign of, of juvenility, right? So across different animals, it's almost always the case that like a little kitten is more playful than an adult cat or a little puppy is more playful than an adult dog or a little human is more playful than an adult human. Um, so when adults of a species kind of keep those traits that are more like what a typical juvenile is like, that's, that's this term pedomorphism, which is sort of one flavor of heterochrony, basically. There's different ways that heterochrony can work and you can t change the dial. But one way you can change the dial is to kind of keep the more youthful traits even when you get older. And Does that... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead, please. No, I was just going to – does that affect that playfulness? Does that affect sort of um, going, again, this mental flexibility? Do we do we see any indication that if, if there is that playfulness? Because I, I know that's often referred to, you know, with human beings is as people get older, if they're, they're more playful, if they're more engaged in things like music and arts and things that they mentally stay – quote, younger. Mm -hmm. um, do, we, do we see any indications of, of that kind of thing in chimps or bonobos? Um, so like, do they have more flexibility in their cognition as they are adults? Yeah. I, yeah. Would, you know, I think that's an interesting question. Um, 
my guess is that it could be important, but maybe more for um, some of their social interactions. Like it definitely does seem that bonobos are a little bit more flexible in their social interactions when they're older, in part because they are more tolerant, right? So the risks of um, the risks of a wrong move are basically less for a bonobo, right? Um, whereas in chimps, there can be this real intense aggression. That kind of intense aggression is not very common amongst bonobos, or it plays out in a different way. So you're it's like the hierarchy is not quite as strict, for example. Yeah, um, I, I was just wondering because you, I mean, it's, you were describing the the difference between you know chimps being north of the Congo River and, and bonobos mm -hmm. south, and and the difference in in their foraging. There's one flex flexibility, mental flexibility that has to come from dealing with a more diverse environment, dealing with it, coming in contact with other individuals, other troops, um, and and dealing with those complexities of life. But then you turn looking at bonobos, if if they keep this youthfulness as they get older and they're more playful, they're more engaged socially like that, um, does there's also a, a mental flexibility that comes from all of that. And I guess that's what I'm wondering about is it does one of those, I mean, maybe from an evolutionary standpoint, again, looking at how do you create a human, um, does one of those outweigh the other? I mean, in the particular case of spatial memory that we were looking at, I would actually say that keeping the more youthful trait is actually not, uh, is not as advantageous, right? Because that basically, in this particular context, although not necessarily in all contexts, it's actually kind of the less flexible, um, less less uh, complex version of the skill. Um, so, for example, in humans, we see that you know, like like a toddler can kind of remembers some stuff, but um, there seems to be a big ramping up of how kids think about space and navigate space you know, in the childhood years. So there's like a real big shift in how flexible actually kids are in thinking about and traveling through their environments. Um, and the idea here is that the bonobos are kind of keeping that younger version, which means that they actually don't remember as many things or they're not as adept at navigating between different kinds of resources. Whereas the chimps actually showed the same ramp up that we see in humans. Um, so, you know, the little infants of both species kind of acted about the same. They were pretty similar. But once we looked to the older chimpanzees, like just maybe over age five, they start really um, solving this problem in a lot more sophisticated ways. Whereas the bonobos just kind of keep on doing the same thing. So I think, you know, maybe the message of pedomorphism is that in some cases, this more youthful um, trait might be, might, you know, reflect some kind of flexibility or allow for more different kinds of behaviors. But in this particular cognitive trait, it actually is the chimps that are showing the more flexible responses. Hmm. Well, um, I, I just, I guess I'd like to sort of, we've been going for a while here and I thank you again for the time. And I'd like to just sort of end with what, what's, what's next? What is the magic thing out there that, that, uh, Alex De, uh, Rosati would love to figure out about us mentally? Like what's, what's the magic piece? If you could sit down and, and watch bonobos or chimps or us, um, for a while, where's, is there some little magic connector or piece that just sort of would open up a whole new box of understanding? I think one thing I'm really interested in right now is trying to understand how individuals 
and their individual decisions and their individual actions play out in this social group context where we have things like a, gr a group action where individuals are acting together. So I think as a psychologist, we often study individuals more in isolation, right? Like we play a game with this one chimp and see how they solve problems. And we play a game with that one bonobo and see how they solve problems. But in real life, you know, chimps, bonobos, humans, we're always surrounded by other individuals in our group. And oftentimes we make decisions and act together collectively. And I think these are some of the most interesting behaviors we see in, in wild animals like chimpanzees. So things like group hunting, or territorial boundary patrols, where there's, it's not just about one individual making a decision to hunt, it's about a whole bunch of individuals doing this action together. How do they do it and, and how is it working that way? So I think it's actually really difficult to study these kinds of collective group actions in, as a psychologist because we're so used to thinking about the individual. But you know, folks who study wild primates are maybe much more used to thinking about them as a group and how groups together are influencing each other's behavior. So, you know, that's one thing I'm really hoping to understand better is how differences in what individuals are doing feeds into what the group is doing and vice versa. Um, and so we're trying to do that by combining maybe some of these observations of what groups really do with these experiments with individuals and how they respond to problems and putting this information together. Hmm. Uh, that no, that really sounds interesting, especially in light of the last year that we've kind of gone through. Um, it's been interesting, I, I think, to, to kind of step back and as almost not look at it as a human being, but just look at it as a giant experiment. Uh, you know, we've had, for example, the United States. I mean, it's been like in a giant petri dish. You know, all these things have been happening, and to to watch groups and individuals have to deal with this collective problem um, of, the, of the pandemic and then the, the socioeconomic issues that have come along with it. Um, so I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking it would have been interesting to, to have sat 30,000 feet above the entire country during that period and kind of watched this whole organism work as a unit and not work as a unit. Yeah, I mean, it really has been this huge collective action problem. Like, how does like the whole world coordinate to um, to tackle this problem of the virus? And you know, I don't think you know, chimps maybe don't face that large scale collective collective action problem, but they do face you know smaller scale versions of that, where you know there are things that it pays off if all the chimps um, hunt together; they're more likely to succeed. Um, but the, the fact of a group hunting together is, is just made up of a bunch of individuals each deciding to hunt. So how do you get from one to the other? And like, how does this work? So, you know, and I think we're seeing that right now, which is like, un we need to understand not just individuals and their individual decisions, but these group decisions where everybody together has to coordinate to solve the problem. And yeah, I think this is probably one of the biggest problems in, in the social sciences. Hmm. Well, on that note, um, I, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to, to spend with us on Talking Apes. And it's just really, really fascinating. I just, um, every time I read one of your pieces, I wanted to send you an email that said, okay, explain this. I don't understand this quite so much. So you may get a lot more emails from me um, over, over the future. But uh, if, And if you're plowing through something that just is, is really interesting and you'd like to share with us, I'd love to have you back on sometime and, uh, okay. and talk, talk more. So great. Again, thank you so much for spending some time on Talking Apes and we'll see you soon.
Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Many thanks to Alex Rosati for sharing her window into the minds of apes like us. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all her work behind the scenes. And finally, Talking Apes podcasts are made possible because of listeners like you. Please support Talking Apes. You can do so at Globio, that's G-L-O-B-I-O dot org with your tax-deductible donation. Until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes. <laughs>